One of the great challenges is to retain faith, to persevere in faith in challenging and trying times. The recipients of this epistle, the epistle to the Hebrews, were undoubtedly facing challenging times. They were living in the capital of the Roman Empire in Rome, and there stands for Christ and the exclusivity of Jesus Christ in a polytheistic world brought them unwarranted, at least in their minds, undue attention and even suffering. And many of these who had been targeted, singled out for their faith in Christ, were beginning, beginning to con reconsider their commitment to Jesus, whether or not they should continue or they should return to the old ways of Judaism, which, as I mentioned last week, provided them with some protection. And so what the writer of Hebrew does, he pens this epistle, and he reminds these believers, believers whom he had known, that our Lord Jesus Christ is better than whatever they would seek to find in Judaism. That he's better than angels in chapter 1. And here in chapter 3, in the first six verses of chapter 3, he says Jesus is better even than Moses. In verses 1 to 3 of chapter 6, he portrays Jesus as the example of faithfulness. A faithfulness that they too must imitate. And the question that is asked in the first six verses of chapter 3 is, Jesus is faithful, will you also be faithful? But in the second part of chapter 3, Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 to 19, the writer moves from the positive example of faithfulness in verses 1 to 6, and now in verses 7 to 19, he gives them a negative example that they must not imitate. Here is Jesus, he says, the positive example of one who is faithful and you must imitate him. But I want to show you, he says, an example of one that is unfaithful that you must not imitate. And the example of unfaithfulness that they ought not to imitate is, of course, the example of ancient Israel. In chapter 4, the writer, who it is clear is a pastor because of the, the language, the diction of the epistle, in which there are several exhortations given to the people. In chapter 4, he will go on then to announce the rest that God has promised for those who persevere in faith. But what I want us to consider is then the passage in verses 7 to 19 that presents this example, this negative example of Israel and their unfaithfulness that believers must not imitate. Broadly considered, this section, verses 7 to 19, falls into two parts. Verses 7 to 11 consists of a quotation from Psalm 95, verses 7 to 11. And then verses 12 to 19 is an application of that psalm that is quoted in verses 7 to 11. More specifically, this passage, that is verses 7 to 19, 
contains a warning against unbelief. Secondly, there is the rationale for the warning to avoid unbelief. And thirdly, we note the tragic consequence of unbelief. And so we're going to be looking then at these different ideas as we work through the passage. First of all, verses 7 to 13, the warning against unbelief. The writer, having portrayed Christ positively as the example that they ought to follow, presents to them Israel, an example that they ought not to follow. And he quotes, in presenting Israel as the example they ought not to follow, he quotes from Psalm 95. You see that in verse 7, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works forty years. Therefore I was angry with that generation, and I said, They always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, They shall not enter my rest. The writer takes the psalm, Psalm 95. It was a well-known psalm. In fact, it is said that in every synagogue on the Sabbath day, this was a psalm that was recited. It was also recited in church congregations on Sundays or on the Lord's Day. And one of the reasons that this psalm was so important in worship was because the psalm divided into two parts. And the first part of the psalm, Psalm 95, deals with an exhortation, a call to worship. If you go to Psalm 95, you will see that, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalm, for the Lord is the great God and the great King above all gods. In his hands are the deep places of the earth. The heights of the hills are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands form the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. So that there is then in Verses 1 to 7a of the psalm are called to worship. But the psalm deviates radically because in verses 7b to verse 11, it then brings to them the warning of unfaithfulness. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. And so the psalm, Psalm 95, verses 7 to 11, warns about following Israel in their rebellion against God. And the psalmist, having warned them, provides material for the writer of the Hebrews to use. He draws upon this psalm. And by drawing upon this psalm, he suggests that there is a sense in which one may compare ancient Israel to the church. Because like ancient Israel, the church is a pilgrim people moving towards rest eternal rest. And the writer draws from Psalm 95 and he says, that psalmist spoke to his generation, warning them not to harden their hearts against God. And he says, you who are about to depart from the Lord, you are in danger 
of following Israel's example of departing from God. But when one looks at Psalm 95 and the call, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. What does the psalmist refer to as the rebellion? What is he talking about in Israel's history? It is true that Israel's history was a history of rebellion. That their entire sojourn with the Lord was characterized by godlessness, by unfaithfulness. But when he says, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, the writer, the psalmist, is referring to a particular time in Israel's history. He's really referring to the time at Kadesh Barnea, a time that is described by Moses in Numbers 13 and 14. Prior to their arrival at Kadesh Barnea, Israel had come out of Egypt. And after a few months, they had traveled to Horeb or Mount Sinai. And it appears that they stayed at Mount Sinai for approximately one year. At the end of the year, of course, they had received the law. They had been given description of the tabernacle. They had built the tabernacle, and now it was time for them to move. The Lord said, you have stayed here long enough. It is time for you to move. And by calling them to go forward, he was calling them to enter into the land of Canaan, which was promised to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And so Israel departed from Mount Sinai or Horeb. And they traveled for 11 days in the wilderness of Paran until they came to Kadesh Barnea, a trip of about 150 miles. There they are in Kadesh Barnea. They are now within sight and sound of the promised land. They can see the promised land. They can inherit the promised land. But before they rush into the promised land, Moses dispatches 12 spies to go and check out the land, to do a reconnaissance of the land, to see what is awaiting them in the land. And these 12 spies enter the land, and they go from north to south, from east to west. They surveyed the land for 40 days. And at the end of the 40 days, they return with a report. First of all, the report they gave began very encouragingly. They said, this land is a land that is flowing with milk and honey. It is an abundantly fruitful land. And in fact, they produced a bunch of grape that they had taken from the valley of Eshkol that two men had to carry. That's how abundantly blessed the land was. So they began with this positive report. The land is tremendous. We, 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 we saw there great fruitfulness. But like most skeptics, there's always around the corner an if and a but lurking. And so they have this but. We got a problem, they said. And in fact, they listed two problems. First of all, they said, while we have been traveling the land for the last 40 days, we came across giants. Giants. We found the descendants of Anak, 
giants in the land. And secondly, these people in the land are well fortified. They, had, they have defenses around their cities and we are not able to overcome them. So Joshua and Caleb, two of the spies, said, let's not be dismayed. The Lord has said that he will give us this land. Let's go in and inherit the land. But the people were dismayed by the evil report of the ten spies. And they refused to enter. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. It is at this point that Israel rebelled against God. They refused to take the land. In fact, they complained against God, saying that God's intention to them was evil all along because he wanted to deliver them from Egypt to give them as a gift to the nations of the land for them to be destroyed. Moreover, they began to contemplate selecting new leaders to replace Moses and Aaron and Joshua and Caleb, new leaders to take them back to Egypt. Well, this is their rebellion. And even with the encouragement of Joshua and Caleb and Moses, they refused to enter the land. In fact, they threatened to stone their leaders. That's how upset they were. Now, the writer of Hebrews quotes Psalm 95, which points to this incident, this rebellion in the wilderness when Israel refused to enter the land. And he says, do not harden your heart in the rebellion. In verse 12, he comments on this text. And he says, beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. It is important that when the writer of Hebrews looks back at Israel's rebellion in the wilderness when they refused to enter the land, that the writer of Hebrews characterizes their rebellion as unbelief. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. I want you to note that apistia here, unbelief, occurs in verse 12. It doesn't occur in the psalm. Psalm 95, but it occurs in verse 12. And if you go down to verse 19, you will see that unbelief occurs again. So verse 12, beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. In verse 19, so we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Thus, then, the primary failing of Israel. Their major sin, the writer of Hebrews says, is apistia, unbelief. And why does, he, why does he characterize Israel's rebellion, their refusal to go into the land as unbelief? Well, it is because in Numbers chapter 11, 14, in the same passage where they wanted to stone Moses and stone their leaders and said, we are not going to go into the land, the Lord speaks, and in part of his address, the Lord said to Moses, Numbers 14, verse 11, How long will these people reject me, and how long will they not believe in me? 
How long will they not believe in me with all the signs which I have performed among them? You see, Israel refused to believe in God. What it does not mean is that Israel denied the existence of God. Israel believed in the existence of God. But Israel refused to believe in the word of God. Refused to take God at his word and refused to act upon the word of God. It was therefore unbelief. And the writer says, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you a heart, a disposition that is evil by nature, a heart of unbelief that leads to departure from God. This condition, this unbelief, he sees as essentially an act of apostasy. It is a departure from God. It is a decisive and a deliberate turning away from God. That Israel, though they were given miraculous signs, did not trust, did not commit. That's what faith is. They did not commit themselves to God and to his word. They did not trust God's person. They did not trust God's promises. They did not trust God's providence. They were characterized by unbelief. And the writer speaks sharply. Beware, be on your guard, take note, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. Because this unbelief is a departure from the living God. Not only does he exhort them then to check their hearts, lest unbelief develops within them, but he also exhorts them to instruct and to encourage one another. And so, in verse 13, but exhort or encourage one another daily. So not only must they beware that they, they themselves do not depart from the Lord because of unbelief, but they must also encourage one another daily. While it is called today, in verse 13, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. So the the believers then have a twofold obligation. On one hand, they must watch, keep careful watch over their own lives, lest they, lest they have within them an evil heart that disbelieves, a heart that will not trust God. But at the same time, they have the obligation of encouraging each other in the faith, to press on in the faith, lest any of them become hardened, develop spiritual sclerosis. And this spiritual sclerosis comes through the deceitfulness of sin. Sin itself is deceitful because it promises much and promises pleasure, but it leads ultimately to death. So we, f we find then in verses, one, verses 7 to 13 the warning against unbelief. But in verse 14, there is a rationale for avoiding unbelief. For we have become partakers of Christ, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. He says, I call on you to guard against unbelief and to encourage others against being hardened in this unbelief. But the reason that I do so, I do so on the basis that you have already begun the Christian life. For we have become partakers of Christ. It is precisely then 
because you are partakers of Christ, that I exhort you to be on your guard against unbelief. Notice that the original text has partakers at the beginning of the verse. So in other words, we could read, partakers of Christ you have become. The emphasis is that they are those who have a relationship with Christ, and he says, you have become partakers of Christ. Now, this language of becoming is in the perfect tense, and it refers to something that occurred in their past, something that is a present reality and will also be true in the future. So he says, partakers of Christ, you have become. The term that is used, partakers, metatrosis, describes then their relationship with God. To be partakers really means to share. That's the basic meaning. To share with another person. To enter into partnership. So he's saying you, are, you have become partners with Christ. You have entered into a relationship with Christ. But the term itself, metatrosis, not only refers to partnership, it also has the nuance of participation in. And I think that this is the major nuance that we ought to look at in this verse. He says, for we have become partakers. In other words, we have entered into, we are participating in Christ. Not only are they partners with Christ, but they participate in Christ. And I would suggest to you that verse 14, in calling them those who have become partakers of Christ, he's really using a synonymous expression for what the Apostle Paul calls as union with Christ. They have become partakers of Christ. They have entered into Christ. They are sharing in Christ as the body of Christ. They have been united to Christ by the Holy Spirit. And they are sharing in Christ through union with Christ. And not only do they share in Christ, but they share in the benefits of Christ. That all that Christ did on the cross becomes theirs because they are in him. So he says, I want you to be on your guard lest you be hardened by unbelief and in unbelief because you have become sharers in Christ. You are in him and you are sharing in the benefits of Christ. The term partakers occurs a few places in the book of Hebrews. And when you look at these uses of the term partakers, it fleshes out what it means for them to be partakers of Christ, to share in Christ. First of all, to be a partaker in Christ, to be a one who shares in Christ, means that he or she partakes in the heavenly calling. So let's look at the term partakers is used in verse 3, sorry, verse 1 of chapter 3. Here we see the term used in verse 14, first used in chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. Those who are partakers in Christ have partaken of the high calling, 
they have received that irresistible and powerful call from heaven that brings them into salvation. So to partake in Christ is to partake in the heavenly calling. It is being called to share in the joy of the Lord, in the inheritance in Christ, and to share ultimately in the glory and honor of Christ. But what else does it mean to be a partaker of Christ? Not only does it mean to partake of the heavenly calling, but to be a partaker of Christ means that they are partakers of the Holy Spirit. In one of the most trenchant warnings, you know, this, this passage here, verses 7 to 19, is the second warning passage in Hebrews. The first is found in chapter 2, 1 and following. But this is the second warning passage. But there is another trenchant, severe warning passage that occurs in chapter 6. And in that passage, we note what the writer says. He says, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit. If these were to turn away to renew them to repentance. But you, what you notice that in this warning, he says that they have become partakers of the Holy Spirit. To be a partaker of Christ is to share in the heavenly calling. It is to be irrevocably changed, saved. It is to be given new life from heaven. But the one who shares in Christ, who's a partaker of Christ, partakes not only of the heavenly calling, but also of the Holy Spirit. In fact, the Apostle Paul would say that. He was making it clear to be in Christ is to be in the Spirit. For if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, is none of his. So that anyone who is in Christ must also be in the Spirit. We must be indwelt by the Holy Spirit because you cannot have Christ. You cannot be in Christ without being in the Spirit. You cannot be a partaker of Christ without being a partaker of the Holy Spirit. So there are two things we note then that partakers of Christ will possess. They will also be partakers of the heavenly calling. They will be partakers of the Holy Spirit. But we see another instance where the term partaker occurs. It occurs in chapter 12 and verses 7 to 8 here in Hebrews. And so the writer says, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. And what does the text mean? Well, it means that every child of God, everyone who belongs to God, must endure and must experience suffering, discipline. A discipline from God teaches us that we belong to him. For the Lord indeed chastens every son and scourges every son he receives. And so to be in Christ is to be a partaker of discipline. Now that may not sound like good news to you. I know most of, nobody goes around thinking, you know, discipline is a good thing, I like it, you know, please give me some more. I understand that. But I want to suggest to you that there is good news there, even in bad news. You know, discipline is painful. We don't want it. But if you are facing God's chastening, if you are facing God's discipline, 
while you are weeping, you can also be rejoicing because there is something that you are being told, there is a message which has been given to you. As you partake in discipline, you are being told that you belong to God. The God will not allow us to run wild. Listen, I don't know about you, but I have a very hard head. And I suspect that many of us have hard heads. God has to teach us things many times before they sink in. And one of the ways that God grabs our attention is by discipline. Discipline. Causing suffering in our lives. But if you are in Christ, you will partake in Christ and you will partake in the discipline of God because the discipline of God tells you that God cares enough to do something about the way you live. That he will pull you up short. That he will arrest you. That he will grab hold of your attention lest you be lost. Now the writer of Hebrews says that these believers, they are partakers of Christ. The rationale why they should be on guard against unbelief is that they have already now shared in Christ. And they're sharing in the heavenly calling, sharing in the spirit, and they're sharing in the discipline that God gives to his children. But verse 3, or chapter 3, verse 14, has a conditional clause. He says, for we have become in the past partakers of Christ. And then the conditional clause, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. And what is he saying? He's saying that we can have the assurance that we are partaking in Christ, but the assurance that we have is, rests on our continuance and persevering, he says, in our confidence, steadfast to the end. Now, let's, let's, let's note that verse 14 parallels what we find in verse 6 of the same chapter. Because there in verse 6, it says, But Christ as son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. So he says in verse 3, he says, We are God's family, if we hold fast our confidence and our rejoicing to the end, this hope we have to the end. Now he says, we have become partakers. We have become sharers in Christ. And the proof that we are sharing in Christ, the proof that we are joined to Christ, the proof that we are Christians, the proof that we have a relationship with God is that we continue to hold fast to our confidence. And our confidence means our initial professional faith that we are holding fast to our initial stance and holding fast to the end what this conditional clause does in verse 14 it tells us that persevering in faith to the end is proof positive the evidence that we share in Christ that we are genuine Christians one cannot claim to be in Christ unless he or she perseveres in faith you see, the true biblical faith is always persevering faith. So we've looked at two things. We've looked at the warning against unbelief. We've looked at the rationale for the warning against unbelief. That is, they are partakers of Christ, and they must therefore exhibit perseverance if they are partakers of Christ. But in verses 15 to 19, we have the sober note, a rather sober note. We see now the tragic consequence of unbelief. The writer will from this point on draw a final lesson about the unbelief of the wilderness generation. 
And so he returns to Psalm 95. Already we've seen Psalm 95 quoted in verses 7 to 11. But now in verse 15, he returns to verse 7 of Psalm 95. Why it is said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. So again, he impresses on them the need to persevere, not to harden their heart in rebellion, not to harden their heart in unbelief. To press home the seriousness of Israel's unbelief, he will ask three short rhetorical questions. He asks, based on Psalm 95, first, who rebelled? And he will answer each question that he asks. Well, he asks first, who rebelled? And so he says in verse 16, For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt, led by Moses? That's the first question, who rebelled? Well, the second question, found in verse 17, Now, with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And the third question, to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So in verses 16 to 18, the pastor, the writer, draws their attention to the people who hardened their hearts. And these three questions are posed. Who rebelled? With whom was God angry? And to whom did he swear they would not enter into rest? And on each occasion, the answer overwhelmingly must be Israel. For these were the people of God who experienced the miraculous power of God. They saw God at work in the deliverance from Egypt when the Red Sea parted. They saw God bring water out of the rock. They saw God provide for them manna from heaven. They saw great miracles of God. And nevertheless, these very people were the ones who did not believe, who rebelled. These were the ones who sinned against God, and these were the ones who did not enter into God's rest. Why does he keep asking the question, who did this? Who rebelled? To whom did God swear? It is precisely because he wants to draw attention that Israel was a privileged and blessed community. It was to people whom God had manifested himself and made himself known in the law. These were the most blessed people on earth, but they, they rebelled. You see, the possession of great privileges do not by themselves immunize us from sinning against God. Verses, verse 19 comes to the heart of the issue because what it shows is the consequence of Israel's unbelief and rebellion against God. This rebellion led to exclusion from rest in the promised land. And so he says, so we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Chapter 3, 19. Now, note that the text does not say that they did not enter in because of unbelief, but rather they could not. In fact, the term there is able. They were not able to enter in because of unbelief. Well, what is he saying? Well, he's bringing us back to the passage in Numbers 14. Well, what occurred after the Lord came to Moses and was angry with that generation? In fact, the Lord threatened that Israel 
would not enter the land in Numbers 14. And in fact, that they would wander in the wilderness for 40 years. In fact, the Lord also called that the 10 spies who brought back the evil report were to come. And they were executed. They died before the Lord. When the children of Israel saw that, saw that God was angry, that he had now told them that they were not going to enter the land and they were going to die in the wilderness after 40 years, they had a change of heart. They said, let's go up and take the land. We can do it. And they were ready to go into the land. And Moses said to them, don't go, because the Lord is not with you. And if you go up there, you're going to be beaten up. In other words, you're going to, be, you're going to, be, you're going to lose the battle. But they said, no, we can do this. Let's go up. And so they ran on into the land. And guess what happened to them? You don't have to be a rocket scientist to know what happened. They were soundly beaten. You see, they were not able to enter the land. They were not able to take the land because the Lord was not with them. It was because of unbelief why that generation lost the promised land and wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. You see, the tragic consequence of unbelief is that it leads to exclusion from God's eternal rest. And so what, is state, what the writer wants us to know, that regardless of whatever privileges that we may have, that unbelief is fatal. Let's never be in doubt that unbelief is the deadliest of sins. That from the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden, man has continually turned away and failed to commit to God. Adam and Eve failed in the garden because they did not trust God's word. And that tendency not to believe in God cropped up in the Exodus generation. It raised its head in the time of Jesus because we are told in John 12, 37, but although he had done so many signs among them, they did not believe in him. An unbelief has dogged our path from creation even to this present time. But it seems that at no other point have we been steeped in unbelief as we are today. You see, in the medieval times, there, there was unbelief where God was concerned. But most of that unbelief was private. But now, in our present context, we pride ourselves in unbelief. We see rejection of God as an inalienable right and a mark of intellectual progress and maturity. And while this is concerning and lamentable, the unbelief that now engulfs our world and engulfs Western society, what is even more shocking is that unbelief is found even in the pews. In fact, it is found in the pulpits. It is found in our seminaries. Barner Research Group conducts research in the U.S. regarding Christians in the health of Christians in the U.S. And if you read the statistics, you will find that a significant number of professing Christians will deny some of the basic tenets of the Christian faith in the U.S. And I would think that that would not be very different from what we have here. You see, unbelief is not just in the world, it is also in the church. But we ought not to be mistaken 
that unbelief is not primarily an intellectual but a spiritual issue. Fundamentally at heart, it is a matter of the heart. Someone once asked Bertrand Russell, the British philosopher, atheist, skeptic, who wrote the book, Why I Am Not a Christian. Somebody asked him, what happens if you died and came face to face to God? And God were to ask you, why did you not believe in me? Russell said, I will say to God, sir, you did not give me enough evidence. Of course, his answer begs the question, what would he have accepted as sufficient evidence? Let's be clear that unbelief is not the lack of evidence. But rather, unbelief is the rejection of evidence. You know, Israel did not lack evidence. They did not lack any evidence regarding the power of God. Can you imagine this generation walked through the Red Sea? They had on both sides of them a bank of water. They saw when they left the Red Sea, the water came back and drowned the Egyptian. What more evidence did they need that God was able to clear the way for them into the land? He cleared the way through the Red Sea. He led them through the wilderness. He carried them with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. They saw God's mighty power coming down on Mount Sinai in thunder and lightning and smoke. But you see, unbelief is not a lack of evidence. It is despite the evidence. For unbelief stems from an evil heart that is resilient to the most potent evidence. It comes from a heart that is biased and corrupt. A heart in revolt against God. A heart that says, I will never bow. Jesus says, you will, you will not come to me that you may have life. You see, unbelief is a vote of no confidence in God. It is a rejection of the person of God and the promises of God and the providence of God. It is a refusal to accept the testimony of God regarding Christ, who was manifested in the flesh, who is a Savior who atoned for our sins. You need to know that unbelief is a spiritual condition. It is spiritual sclerosis. It is resilient to the most potent evidence. And you also need to know that unbelief is not inconsequential because it shuts people out of heaven. Unbelief kept Israel out of the land and unbelief will keep many out of heaven. So what must we do? Well, we must hear the voice of God. We must hear the call of the Spirit that says today. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. We ought to hear the Spirit speaking to us. That each day is a fresh opportunity for us to trust God. Today, we must hear God calling us to come to Christ and we must believe in him. We must hear the voice of God saying, repent and turn and seek the Lord. We must hear today the call of God that says you must press on in your faith. 
You must not give up. You must not look behind. You must not turn aside. But you must continue to hold to your faith. Today, you hear the voice of God saying you must take the word of God and the beer word of God and trust the word of God. And even when circumstances seem to be opposed to what the promises of God are, you are to cling to the promises of God regardless of circumstances. There were giants in the land and there were fortified cities, but what Israel had, they had the sovereign God of heaven and earth. And the God that you have with you is the one who made the heavens and the earth and all that is in it. And so you must trust his very word. You must be like Abraham, who the older he became, the greater his faith. That even when the promises were not being fulfilled, that Abraham kept on believing and did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. You must watch your heart that the circumstances of life and the trials of life do not cause you to become practical atheists, to believe theoretically in God, but live as though his word does not matter, failing to expect anything from God, failing to attempt anything for God because you really don't think that God is a powerful God and is going to act on your behalf. We must not be theoretical atheists, but nor are we to be practical atheists. You must know then that you are to hear the voice of the Spirit calling you today. Today to trust. Today to press on with, with your faith in Christ. Know that this is a continual obligation to keep a watch of our hearts that we do not turn away from the Lord. But this call to press on in faith is not only a continual obligation, it is a corporate obligation. The reason we assemble together as a church, it is because we can only persevere together. Let's be very clear. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. There are Lone Rangers and there are Christians, but there are no Lone Ranger Christians. You and I cannot make this by ourselves. We are called to exhort one another daily, lest we be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The reason we do not forsake the assembling of ourselves together is that we need one another. We may think that we can do this on our own, but let's be very clear that God saved us and placed us in the church because the church is there to encourage us in the progress of faith. We need other Christians for our development, for our continuance in the faith. And so he says we are to exhort one another daily. And if we are to exhort one another daily, we must first of all, we must first of all be in communion and fellowship with one another. Let's be clear. The church of Jesus Christ is not an added extra. It is not superfluous. It is, it is essential for our progress in faith. And look, the less you fellowship and the more you withhold yourself from the fellowship of God's people, the less you will grow. You cannot make progress in the faith unless you're doing it as part of the body of Christ. It means you, if you're saved, you must be baptized. And if you're baptized, you must be a member of a church. And if you're a member of a church, you must be involved in the regular worship and service of that work because you cannot progress in the, in the life. Christianity is a corporate. It, it is a corporate responsibility. It is individual because we watch on our, our hearts, but we also watch out for one another. But let me say this, as we press on the faith, recognizing that unbelief is deadly, 
And as we hear the voice of the Spirit today to live out this life in faith, in God, in his person, in his promises, and in his providence, we must live this faith in the conviction of who we are. We are partakers of Christ. We must persist in this faith, knowing that we belong to Christ and that we are assured of salvation. We are not then continuing in this faith because we want to be saved, but we are doing so because we have been saved and our salvation is secure. I'm reminded of our Lord's comment in Matthew chapter 10, 27 to 29. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. We must persist in faith, trusting more and more in God, holding the confidence that we had when we became Christians. We must continue to hold on to Jesus Christ. We must continue to cling to him. Why? Because fundamentally, it is he who clings to us. He says, I know my sheep. I lay down my life for my sheep. And I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish. Why? Not because they are powerful, but they are in the grip of the powerful God. No one is able to take them out of my father's hand. Why? Because his hands are everlasting arms. Let me close with the words of John Rippon, the wonderful, wonderful writer of hymns. Hymn writer, he says, The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I will never no, never, no, never forsake. May God bless you for Jesus' sake. Amen.